This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Steve Denier with you tonight on my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. What can I say about tonight's guest then? Uh, he's done everything and he's great at everything. Interviewer, Eurovision host, Virgin Radio presenter. Uh, most importantly, really, really lovely guy, Graham Norton. Hello. Ah, Steve Denier. No, you're lovely. You're lovely. You're lovelier. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Now, you're in. You're kind of on your break, aren't you, in, in, in Ireland? Yes, I'm enjoy- currently enjoying the Irish sun- sunshine. I actually, I, I do get really tanned here because if it's sunny at all, I go outside. So by the time I come back, I look like, you know, some sort of leathery lobster. <laughs> and it's so lovely to know that you are, you know, you're gonna you're giving up an hour to play these great songs and do this today. And you've picked some real belters. And I was just saying a moment ago, you know, the the hev- heavily influenced by a fair bit of Madonna. Um, later quite a bit Madonna, hour. but also music lovers beware. There's some real dross on here as well. <laughs> well, let's start from the beginning. David Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> let's start with the dross. <laughs> let's start right at number one. Uh, could it be forever? Tell me about this. So. Uh, you know, in terms of your Pride playlist, this would be my my sort of sexual awakening uh, where I loved David Cassidy. Mm-hmm. Didn't really care about the music, but loved David Cassidy. And I remember saving up. I think this album was called Cherish. And there's a beautiful picture of him on the front. And uh, this track is off that album. And I remember I must have been, oh, I don't know, eight, seven, eight nine maybe and I'd made uh, a David Cassidy scrapbook and it was all you know hearts and I'd cut out pictures of David <laughs> Cassidy and da 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 and I remember my parents were away and they there was a babysitter and I was thrilled with my David Cassidy scrapbook it was you know I'd made with love and you know a lot of work had gone into it so obviously I wanted to show my babysitter uh, the scrapbook I'd made so I show her the scrapbook and she's leafing through it and I could tell Something like something was going wrong. She was turning the pages and just kind of like, oh. And then she just went, but this is this is something like a girl would make. <laughs> and that was the moment. That was the moment when I knew that I this was not, you know, this was not uh, normal or mainstream or whatever, that a boy would like David Cassidy this much. But I did um, so you mentioned about the scrapbook uh, that, you, that you made age seven? What was it? What was it like back then, knowing that you were different and the whole growing up experience? You know, you were in Ireland as you began your coming out experience. Well, it was odd, I suppose, in that, and this sounds ridiculous, but honestly, it is true that in my sense of feeling other, you know, I think a lot of uh, gay people we we, we grew up slightly feeling like tourists in our own hometowns. Mm. There was that sense of, oh, we don't quite belong in the way that everyone else does. And I think people were able to join up the dots and kind of think, oh, is that to do with my sexuality? Is that to do with that? But for me, it was very confused because I grew up a Protestant in Southern Ireland where everyone is Catholic. So I was, I was, my feeling of otherness was was genuine, was very much identifiable because I was a Protestant. And so those two feelings were quite confusing for me. Mm-hmm. And it was only really when I got out of Ireland that I realized, oh, actually, though, those are two, <laughs> those are two separate things. Um, and even though, you know, I love David Cassidy and, you know, I would get very excited by a Gillette Razor ad on the television, <laughs> um, I, 
I didn't know what to do with those feelings. I didn't know where to go with them. It just seemed impossible to be gay in Ireland at that time. And I know it wasn't. You know, looking back, I see that there were lots of things going on. There were places in Dublin, places in Cork, but I wasn't aware of them um, or was too scared to go looking for them. And so I kind of left Ireland and looked for the kind of anonymity of, of you know, other places where you could be yourself. And it's a big thing, isn't it, almost to bottle this experience up, you know, those very early years, realising there might be something, but you're not sure who to talk to or how to deal with the fact that you may be a little bit different from the other boys, from the other kids. Yeah, and, you know, I... I mean, I had lots of kind of female friends. And I remember in university, they were, would regularly ask me uh, if I was gay. And I would always go, oh, I don't know. Um, which, <laughs> Or, you know, and then you have this like, you know, the bisexual thing. and uh, You know, uh, maybe it's not like this for kids anymore. I hope it's not like, like this for kids anymore. But back then, that was certainly a pretty generic journey we all went on mm. uh, until we finally accepted uh, that we were gay. Um, who did I talk to? I I spoke to, I remember I was spending a summer in London working in restaurants. And, and what was odd was whenever I left Ireland, because in Ireland, uh, people, you know, you could meet the fayest boy in the world in a bar and kind of think, oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. And then you go, oh, God, I must go. My girlfriend would kill me. And so everyone was kind of de facto straight. No one, even if you suspected them, they probably had a girlfriend. Whereas when I went to other places, when I went to uh, London or to Paris, people just assumed I was gay, which immediately kind of freaked me out that these strangers saw me in a way that people in my own life didn't see me. Uh, I also kind of, I hated them making assumptions about me. That kind of, I fought that. Mm. Uh, But equally, you know, eventually you kind of think, okay, I don't think everyone's wrong here. Now, this next track, Liza Minnelli, we we are, you know, instantly ramping up the camp here. Yes, and I remember this. This was actually, this was in Paris. And I was in Paris and I'd been sort of seeing a woman and she'd basically said, look, this is silly, you're gay, da da da, da. And so uh, we broke up in Paris and I spent a lot of time walking the streets of Paris, you know, lots of internal stargazing and crying and drinking big plastic bottles of red wine on the <laughs> steps. And one afternoon I went to the cinema and this film, Cabaret, had been out for a while, but I'd never seen it. And it just seemed that central character uh it just seemed like that was my life at that time here i was in paris and everything was going wrong and that idea of just never fitting in or never finding the right person that unrequited love and this film cabaret spoke to me in a way that it still does i love this film it's one of my favorite films of all time and uh, liza's performance of this is still stunning so you're in Paris and struggling to come to terms with who, who you are. How old were you, kind of 18, 19 years old? I was probably 19, I think, then. I was not, So I, I think I'd had a year of university. Uh, then I did kind of Paris and London. And I came back to court to go to university. And, of course, it is like, you know, uh, after they've seen... You know, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? You know, when I came back to Cork, I was like, no. <laughs> 
this isn't where I'm living. This is not my fabulous life. I'm getting out of here. And I was that year before I left, I was really unhappy. I I just and I, I sort of I suppose I was bottling up all sorts of feelings and I was very confused and and I knew that something had to change. I had to change something in my life. And so getting out of Dodge seemed the easiest thing to do. And Irish students were able to get these J-1 visas, mm. which meant we were able to travel to America and uh, work. So I did that. I headed off. I mean, it was ridiculous. I had £200. And even in 1983, £200 was not enough money <laughs> to go to America with. I think I budgeted as uh, £50 a week. And then by then I'd have a job and I'd be fine. The money was gone in 10 days. I mean, it was, it was you know, I, looking back, I, and my parents knew. They waved me off the airport and they knew I had £200. They thought it was enough money. We were all fools. Uh, but that year in America, because I ended up spending a year, was so kind of life-changing and mind-forming. And I, I came back a very different person. I loved listening to your uh, the, the podcast Chris Evans did with, with you and you explained about... So uh, am I right in thinking you went to America to meet a pen pal who, who you never actually met because you got to L.A. and then... I ended up in San Francisco. Is that the right kind of chronology? Yeah, no, that is it. It was Dave, David Villapando. In terms of, you know, you were talking about who do you talk to, who do you turn to. Mm. I turn, I had a pen pal. It's so quaint now. It's so sweet Lovely. to think about this. But I, I had a pen pal. And over the years, because we wrote to each other for quite a long time, we slowly came out to each other. Um, my Irish coming out was very kind of, you know, I think I feel like this. I don't really know. His coming out in L.A. was much more active. Uh, there was a lot going on uh, in his life, and he was having sex with all sorts of people. So I was thrilled by his letters. They were so exciting. Um, and then I went to America, and the idea was I was going to meet him. I was probably going to stay with him. And then my bus ticket, I had a Rambler bus ticket. It ran out in San Francisco. And so I never got to meet David Villapando. I spoke to him once on the phone, and it's one of the real regrets of my life that I never got to meet David Villapando. And I've tried and tried and tried to find him. And I fear, because I've emailed basically every David Villapando I could find, mm. uh, I fear he may not be still sharing the planet with us. So I, I don't think I'll ever get to actually meet David Villapando, who started this journey for me. And on the plus side, you you ended in San Francisco, which um, you know is one of my favourite places in the world. But I've only been there in the last kind of ten or fifteen years. I can only imagine what you were faced with when you arrived in that great city. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. I think San Francisco is one of those places. It's never as good as it used to be. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so even when I was there, there was a lot of you know, oh, it's been ruined. You know, the financial district's too big, all of that. And that was before all the kind of you know the the tech, the internet stuff, and all the internet millionaires mm. and all that stuff, uh, have, they claim that it, it, that's really ruined the city. And you can see that San Francisco isn't the same. And, you know, it's very hard to live there now. I was able to live there because I was in a hippie commune and I was able to rent a room cheaply. And then I got a, a job in in a restaurant. But the, the next song we're going to play, it was when I got to San Francisco, I got off the bus and because it's Pride Playlist, I pick songs that actually 
reflect the various prides I've been to yeah. over the years. And this was the very first pride I went to. And when I say went to, I was sort of delivered to it. <laughs> the bus doors opened as we got into San Francisco. And as I came off the bus, a flatbed truck of drag queens came around the corner all screaming. And I said, like, wow, this, like, they weren't exaggerating. This is a gay town. <laughs> and then I had my backpack on and I went up the hill to Market Street and it was gay pride. And so I, jo- I joined the crowds watching the parade. And it was all very exciting and exotic. And then uh, I heard this music that I recognized because in Cork, I remember we would listen to Grace Jones. And it just seemed so American and exotic to us. That idea of just, you know, the wet streets of New York. And I don't know, it just it just oozed kind of sophistication and urban glamour. And here she was, Grace Jones, on the back of a truck, singing Pull Up to the Bumper as she went past me in the parade. And it it was a bit kind of, you know, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. <laughs> I felt very far from Cork when the actual woman was singing it to me in the street. Did you, I mean, you must know her. Or at least you've interviewed her. I have met her a few times, and I love her. She is unapologetically Grace Jones. Is she scary? Because um, she's got I mean, that vibe, she is kind she? of scary. Because uh, before she came on my show for the first time, I had to go and meet her in a bar. Wow. And, uh, and you know, she's Grace Jones. So I was in the bar for quite a long time <laughs> before she showed up. I mean, she she really kept me waiting. But, you know, she didn't know from Adam. Um, and I, I was really on my best behavior, and she was great. But what was interesting about her was she she was on the third episode of So Graham Norton back in 98. Mm. And that was really the episode when the show found its feet that was the episode where we we called um, uh, a guy cleaning apartments. He, he cleaned your apartment in the nude, and we called his personal ad. You know, he had an ad in some free paper or something, and we called it. And then he talked to Grace Jones, and he didn't believe it was Grace Jones, and she had to sing a little bit of Le Vion Rose. And that was Amazing. funny and wild and great. And then Judith Chalmers came on, and Judith Chalmers was sitting beside Grace Jones. And it was just that kind of mashup of those very different sort of icons um, on the show. And the show really found itself in that episode. So I'm so, I have a huge affection for Grace Jones. And the great thing about doing this, my prior playlist with you, is quite a lot of the artists that, that we're, we're going to feature, you've either interviewed or you've hung out with. Um, Madonna's coming up soon. But before Madonna, let, check me out trailing Madonna like I am. But uh, we've got a mutual <laughs> love of Madonna. You're such a DJ. <laughs> Still to come. <laughs> Still to come. Uh, in the next five minutes. But first of all, we've got Diana Ross. Tell me about Diana Ross. Chain reaction. Uh, this just brings me back to uh, coming to London. Because when, when I left America, I uh, thought, right, I want to be an actor. So I applied to drama schools and I came to London. And I was working in restaurants. And again, you know, just finding out who I was and being young and going out. And I used to go to, um, what the hell was it called? The 
the one that was under the Astoria, was it Bang? I think it was Bang. Yeah, so that was kind of like the, the club that was connected to it, wasn't it? I think when I was yeah. going there, it was Astoria 2 or something, but it was kind of, I often like that venue more than the big Astoria yeah. for kind of more, yeah. Yeah, I think, but, but, yeah, Bang was actually on Tottenham Court Road. It was mm-hmm. right on the corner there by the, the tube station. It's all gone now due to the big, big railway thing mm. but uh but bang i would go to on a monday night right and i mean how we didn't die i remember <laughs> i remember eating food uh, after going to bang i remember standing on tottenham court road and eating food and a man was cooking it on a bin lid <laughs> he lit a fire <laughs> under a bin lid <laughs> and we were eating it delicious absolutely delicious uh but i i but the real memory of going in there we loved it we'd finish work and then we'd head on down to bang on a monday night because it was really cheap to get in and drinks were quite cheap and it was really busy so you know you'd see some of the same guys every uh, monday night so if there's someone you fancied you could see them again because you know this was a t- an age before any tinder or online or anything you know if you wanted to meet someone you needed to leave the house and go meet them and that was a place to find them and i loved this song uh, diana ross chain reaction i loved it so much that once when it came on, I gave myself a black eye in my rush <laughs> to get to the dance floor. I just punched myself in the face uh, and then did a lot of twirling around to this. That tune came out from mid-90s and you're going out to places like Bang at the Astoria. Can I take you back to that, that era? What was, what was London like? What was the gay scene like mid-80s? Well, it was interesting. I, you know, having come back from America where... Uh, AIDS was very much kind of centre stage in San Francisco. It was, you know, the topic of conversation. When I'd got there, they'd just closed down all the bathhouses and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming to London, it seemed, uh, you know, a bit further away. And then, you know, during the 80s, it arrived. Um, and, it, you know, you think back, I, I, I do think Russell T. Davies, It's a Sin, captured it so brilliantly yeah you know i thought sitting down to watch that show i thought i remembered what it was like in the 80s and then i watched that show and i went no russell remembers Mm. he remembered things that i had totally forgotten that idea of you know going into work and someone just vanishing yeah you just never saw them again and you understood that they were ill that they'd gone home to their families or they were in a hospice or they were just removed there was no no talking about it you didn't really you didn't know they were sick till they were gone and i think that's the thing that people don't understand they think that somehow there was some sort of period of feeling a bit poorly and everyone oh i wonder and then but it wasn't like that you were either well or you were gone um and it I mean, unless you went through it, you don't really know what it was like. I remember there was one boy. Oh, we loved him so much. Um, everyone loved him. Uh, this boy called Sid. And uh, he uh, he was from Canada. And he'd gone home to see his family. That's what we were told. He'd gone home to see his family. Mm. And so we'd no other reason to think it otherwise. And then someone found out the reason why he'd gone back. It was because he could be on the health insurance, his family's health insurance. And I remember being at a lunch and there were four of us and we all loved him. And somebody, one person there, the the point of the lunch was to tell us that Sid uh, was really ill. 
And oh, it was so, so upsetting. And then he was in, uh, he was hospitalized in Vancouver, but then part of his illness was he was having hallucinations and things like that. And so sometimes at work at the restaurant, the phone would ring in the middle of the night and it would be Sid calling from the ward, kind of raving, but sort of knowing who he's talking to. He knew that it was us, um, but heartbreaking, really heart-wrenching uh, at that time. And yet, what you know, I guess it's like any of these things. People didn't sit around. <laughs> you know, you, I tell that story, and it sounds so bleak and so awful. Mm. You think, surely everyone was just sat around with their head in their hands just crying. And we weren't. You know, that was happening... But then we would also go out and there'd be a sign in the club saying, you know, don't have sex with someone with an American accent. But, you know, but people were still out there. And, you know, by that stage, we knew about safe sex. We knew about all of that. So we were taking care of ourselves and each other. And life somehow did go on. And the interesting thing, we go on to Madonna Vogue next. Um, and what a song this is. But also, I mean, this is just a few years later than, than what we were just talking about. And, it, it, you know, I was 13 in 1990, but it does seem that in 1990, there was a kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just crossing into a new decade. Everything seemed a bit more newer, fresher, more exciting. There were more chances. It seemed like a kind of a bit of a reset after the darkness of the 80s. Or am I talking rubbish? No, I don't think so. I think what what you're probably picking up, I think, as a as a young teen, mm. was there was a kind of a positivity that came along. It was a sort of it was the fight back, and it was the act up. And I think now, when you look back, you see what AIDS did for the gay community and how it galvanized people and it organized people. Uh, you know, whereas before, you know, it was quite hedonistic. It was quite, you know, you didn't need to worry about things you lived in a big city and you know you could find the clubs and you could you knew what door to knock on and all of those things and I think in terms of looking for care and looking for protection I think ACT UP and the organizations like that did a great service to the gay community we, we found each other and we all became politicized in a way that we hadn't been and and I don't mean that politicized in a capital P mm. because actually I would say that Vogue was sort of political I remember being in the Vauxhall Tavern uh, in London brilliant it's a big drag bar I love it and it was really fun and they would, before the acts would come on, they'd lower this screen in front of the stage and they'd show music videos and music clips. And they had Madonna's performance at, I don't know whether it was the Grammys or the MTV Music Awards or whatever, but it was that famous kind of um, Marie Antoinette uh, yes. version of Vogue mm. where they were all wearing the crinolines and the ruffs and things. And the dancers... The dancers weren't sort of camp or fay. They weren't kind of like, oh, I bet, I bet that dancer's gay. That was the point of the dancers. They were overtly gay. They were being sexual with each other. You knew what they were. And that seemed really revolutionary to us watching that on, on a big American mainstream stage. And I think... You know, people can forget 
the part that Madonna played in in that, that she did embrace her gay fans. She did embrace gay performers uh, in a very open, overt, unapologetic way. And at that time, that really, really mattered. And all these years later, is fascinating. I think we, you and I, have spoken more about Madonna than anybody else in the last few months. But, <laughs> the, but it's crazy for me to think I can speak with you, and you know her. You know, you, well, you've met her, you've interviewed, I've you've even hung her. up, hang out, hung out with her, haven't you? I mean, I have. I, I still feel I'm very much a fan. You know, I'm maybe a slight... I, I'm a fan with better access, <laughs> but I'm a fan. So I have hung out with her, but I don't feel... I, I would never say I know her or that we're friends. And that's not to say we're not friends. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I hope she doesn't hate me. But, uh, but she... There's very few people I've met who have a sort of outline around them. Like, they are their own creation. Mm. Um, I think we might have talked about this before. I would say Tom Ford is a similar person. Yeah. I mean, successful in a very different field, but has that same sort of, I don't know, remarkable sense of themselves, a real idea of who they are and 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 what they, the, the success they deserve. It's sort of amazing to watch it <laughs> up close uh, because they don't make many of those people. Uh, those people are very few and far between, but Madonna is definitely one of them. And I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but I am. Uh, the moment that she pulled she pulled you out of the audience at London's O2, um, and I've seen other you know, showbiz people being used for the Rebel Heart show. I know that uh, Katy Perry was pulled out, Anderson Cooper, Ariana Grande, but you comp- you were brilliant. You owned it. How-, how did it make you feel? Well, it was awful and brilliant <laughs> at the same time. You know, they they tapped me on the shoulder at the beginning and said, oh, and I knew there was this bit when someone got pulled up, but I just assumed there'd be somebody more famous than me there. And I got this tap on the shoulder and I said, oh, I'm from Madonna's team. Blah, blah, blah. She'd like you to be the person who comes up. And I was like, okay. And, you know, because your your instinct is to go, no. Your instinct is to go, no. And then I thought back to the Graham I'd been at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern watching that video and thought, no, my younger self would never forgive me if I didn't do this. So off I went. (laughs) And they, they kind of brought you to some steps at the bit of the stage, the kind of the big thrust of the stage. And, uh... And then it, it's all so fast. They kind of go, oh, in a minute, blah, blah, blah. And then go, bleh! And somebody pushes, literally pushes you. <laughs> and you're up there. And I just got to thought, right, I can't... If you're embarrassed, it's worse. So I've just got to go for it. So it was dad dancing on an epic scale for what seemed like... <laughs> I mean, minutes and minutes and minutes. I think it was only a couple of minutes, but it seemed to go on for the longest time. But it happened, and it is one of one of the moments of my life that I will look back on in years and think, "Wow, that that I did that. That did actually happen." Everyone should get it on YouTube because I've got to say, you owned it. No, you did they it. shouldn't, you did Steve. It brilliantly, you did it. I was so proud of you. I was watching it. I was thinking, "Oh, that's just superb." So well done on that. Um, okay, so Frankie goes to Hollywood. The power of love. This is this is this is a beautiful, beautiful song, isn't it? And so powerful. And actually, it kind of goes slightly back to what we were talking about because um, 
the reason why I chose this song is because I was at a Pride, a London Pride, mm. and I think it was on Clapham Common. It was one of those really... When London Pride was enormous when it was just like a massive, massive open-air concert and they got really big names. And it was one of those. And it was a beautiful day turning into a gorgeous night. And I must have started, I think I was doing a bit of cub reporting, a little bit of reporting for Channel 4, I think I was. And they must have been doing a program about Pride. And I was like their little stringer at the event. I remember I, I, um, I interviewed Chris Evans at the thing because he, right. he was just doing um, Big Breakfast. So he was a big star. Mm. So he was backstage in kind of the entertainment area, the hospitality area. Because, you know, because all the big stars came. It was like, a, it was a big event. And uh, so I talked to him. And then I interviewed Holly Johnson. And at the time, and I hope, I don't think he'll mind me saying this, but he looked really ill. He... He, you know, I, I was shocked when I met him. Um, and so I'm interviewing him thinking, wow, like, you seem so frail. And, you know, the, I, at that time you thought, there, I know how this story ends. Happily, that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't the ending for Holly. But, mm. but at the time talking to him, I thought this is only going one way. And he got up on stage and the sun was setting. And I'm going to start crying now. Um, but the sun was setting and fireworks were going off. And he sang this and the whole crowd was singing back at him. And it was just beautiful. And it really was the power of love. I mean, it really felt tangible in that moment, him singing to that crowd and them singing back to him. And he was one of the, the first people people to be diagnosed with i mean he's got the full-blown aids hasn't he um and he now is still going he looks really well now oh no i mean that's why i, I that's why i hesitated to talk about how ill he looked because he's great and yeah. he's as far as i know he's hale and hearty and thriving um but just in that moment you know you feared the worst for him yeah yeah Absolutely. Do you, do you know him at all? Have you interviewed him? Since? I've interviewed him a few times. Uh, I don't think we've ever hung out or anything. I might have bumped into him at, you know, a bash or something. Mm. Uh, but he, he's a lovely, lovely guy. I do I really like him. And I feel like his talent isn't acknowledged enough. I mean, he really is a fabulous vocalist. Now, on to your next pick, uh, Share, Believe. I heard you play this on your Virgin Radio UK show a couple of months ago, and there was kind of a, there was a collective cheer in the office. <laughs> um, I, I picked this because, one, well, Cher is also, you know, a bit like Madonna. You know, she stood by us when a lot of people didn't, and she held her, her gay fans close. And I think she understood how important her gay fan base was and didn't shy away from uh, us ever. And so I, I think she should be celebrated for that. Um, but also, she doesn't get kind of the credit that Madonna gets because, you know, Madonna reinvents herself endlessly. But Cher was over. Like, Cher was done when this song came out. Like, you know, Cher was a thing. We all loved Cher. Mm. But the idea of her having... An enormous global hit seemed laughable. You know, that was just not going to happen. And I 
I think I got invited. Yeah, they must. I must have been invited. Otherwise, why was I there? <laughs> uh, to heaven when she debuted this song. It was the first performance, first ever performance of uh, this single, and it. <laughs> we were uh, in some sort of hospitality area at Heaven. She was doing it at Heaven Nightclub. Like I say, she knows her fan base. <laughs> uh, but she had just, I think she must have just been filming or just finished filming at Tea with Mussolini. So they were all there. Like wow. uh, Sir Ben Kingsley introduced her on stage. Hello. This why? is incredible. No idea. Uh, Judy Dench was knocking around <laughs> backstage <laughs> in a lovely pashmina. Uh, they were all there to see their pal Cher uh, uh, belted out in in heaven. And and then I I also talking to her later. I then discovered actually when she was recording this because she recorded that album in London. Um, it's a bit like. Um, uh, Tina Turner kind of reinventing herself with London producers and London writers and yeah. London production. Um, Cher did the same thing and she rented a flat next to my house in London and uh, so and and uh, it's right on the river and when the river goat spoke you can hear the tour going and blah 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 blah, blah. Cher blah blah blah, blah. <laughs> you know, oh yeah they know they know she, like, they know that's where she lives so, so you really do kind of know Cher then so she, she's she's um, you know somebody who you've got to know over the years would you say I've got to know her a bit more in a way I think uh Cher's so comfortable in her own skin. Um, I really, really like her. She, I, 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 she's been on the show a bunch of times, mm. um, but also I've given her an award at something, so we hung out backstage at that. And um, there's something like th- this. I think is the most interesting thing about Cher when she was doing her shows in Vegas. Mm. Uh, Originally, she found it very, very difficult to do her shows in Vegas. She's used to doing shows around the world, lots of screaming fans. You get to Vegas and you walk on stage and there are people with oxygen tanks and, you know, walking frames. And it's an older crowd. You know, they're there. They're rich. They're looking for something to do. Shares on. We'll go to that. Or the share tickets are part of the hotel package. They don't really like share. They're just there. So she suddenly, you know, this global superstar, used to all these screaming people, coming out to a very quiet, sitting down, polite audience. Mm. And she found it really, really difficult. And then she basically said to her, look, uh, she looked out at the audience. She just thought to herself, well, this is probably the last concert a lot of these people will ever see. <laughs> So I'm going to make it a good one. So she that's how she kind of got herself into performance mode. But share like, you know, you know what it's like, even if you do a radio show and that's not doing a concert in Vegas, Mm. you know, your adrenaline is quite high. You couldn't just you can't just say thank you and good night and go to bed. Cher could. There's clearly no adrenaline in her body at all. She was able to leave the stage in Vegas, get in an elevator that was right in the wings, mm. which took her straight up to her suite in the hotel, and she would get out of it and go, <laughs> and go to bed. So uh, she's clearly very at home <laughs> on stage, very at home performing. Uh, but uh, she's she's one of the good ones. And I think it, it's interesting the the stars that have been around the longest they tend to have the smallest entourage. 
because they've figured it out. They've figured out that, hang on, it's very nice to have my own personal sushi chef and a masseur and all these people trailing around me kind of with fans and things. But you're paying them all. That's coming out of your pocket. The record company aren't paying for that. That's mm. you. And so, you know, she travels light. There's Cher and a couple of people, and that's it. And uh, you find with the, the, you know, those big older stars, they know that. <laughs> they're not, you know, they're not the young pop stars who are running around with kind of, you know, 15, 25 people in their entourage. No, they've, they've learned over the years. I'm thinking about Believe and looking back on that. That reminds me very much of you, uh, the, the whole period of, of when you suddenly, you know, you, you must have started around about then, late 90s, kind of on the television. It was the Channel 4 show, Channel 5, Channel 4 era, wasn't it? Around yeah. that kind of time. Um, does that remind well, Let's take you back to the late 90s when you just kind of hit big. Um, explain that. I mean, how did your life change? Was it kind of overnight? Um. It didn't feel overnight, but I guess it kind of was. I mean, I'd been plugging away for a long time. I'd been a stand-up, then I'd done bits of radio, and then um, I started cover- I started doing... When Channel 5 started, you know, they had all these shows, but they had no money. So, you know, the stars weren't going to go to Channel 5, so they had to employ new people. Hello, here I am. <laughs> and so I got some gigs uh, on Channel 5, and then I... Uh, host guest hosted there was a nightly chat show it was the only nightly chat show uh, called the Jack Doherty show and it came from a theatre in the West End the Trafalgar Theatre and uh, it was five nights a week and when he went on holiday they asked if I wanted to guest host and so I did that and it was the oddest feeling because I really felt like I'd come home I felt like I'd found my dream job it was just so comfortable and great but of course it was someone else's job. Mm. So it was like the best of times, the worst of times. I know what I want to do, but someone else is doing it. But on the back of that, I got offered a pilot at Channel 4, and that went okay. And then we got a short little season in the summer of 98. And then we came back, I think, for a Christmas show. And then we did a big, long run in 99. We did the New Year's Eve show for Channel 4. You know, it, it, it sort of... By then, by then it did sort of feel like, ooh, this is a thing now. And I remember it was when Big Brother, I think we were doing five nights a week. We So we did the weekly show for a few years, and then we did five nights a week for a couple of years. And I remember Big Brother was at the absolute, you know, zenith. And we had Dustin Hoffman on the show, and he was doing a sketch about Big Brother, and he was playing the various Big Brother characters. You know, we'd showed them little videos beforehand with mm. their catchphrases and stuff. And I remember going out to dinner after that and we were sort of sitting in, because we, we were doing it in London studio, just again on the river, and we were in a, a restaurant called the Oxo Tower, uh, right beside it. And it was a lovely night and we were out on this balcony and you did feel like, wow, we're at the centre of something. You know, being on Channel 4 then, it really felt like you were... You were right in the heart of kind of that hot TV entertainment thing. Um, and, and, and it's rare that you get to enjoy things like that. It's normally afterwards you look back and you yeah. kind of think, oh, yeah, that was good. But actually, that was one of those rare times where we were in it and going, OK, this is 
This is not going to get better than this. And it hasn't. I've enjoyed my job endlessly. But to be hot, that doesn't happen very often. And for a little, little bit there, uh, the show was hot. And something lovely, having done this, my prior playlist with quite a few other comedians and various people who grew up in the UK back at this time, they've all said that you were the one person that influenced them. You know, as younger people, before they came out, there, there, there weren't that many role models on British television around that time, just before Big Brother started. And they've all said, yeah, without a doubt, Graham Norton. Well, I mean, I, I think what I if I did anything, if my if my role was anything, I don't think people aspired to be me because, you know, I was this kind of camp out there, fae, you know, kind of court gesture. But, you know, I was kind of Larry Grayson, but out. Uh, something I never wanted to be. I remember watching Larry Grayson thinking, God, does being <laughs> gay mean I have to be like that? Turns out, in my case, it did. <laughs> uh, but I think what it did did what it said to people was that being out wasn't uh wasn't a, an impediment to success you could be out and be on television and be successful in, in a way that you know julian clary done before me and you know and then there was me and umpteen people since but i think if you're a young person you know going back to what we we're talking about being in a rural community being there aren't the gay bars to go stand in. There aren't the the resources. If you can sit in your town and look at TV and see someone who is openly gay and is being accepted, is on television, is interviewing the biggest stars in the world, is chatting to straight people in an audience, having a good time, I think it makes you, hopefully, it makes you think, oh, actually, this is possible. I can... I can be who I am and still have a, a happy, engaged life with society. I don't have to skulk away and hide in a corner. I can just be. Now, before we talk about Dolly Parton, tell me why you've picked this track, Marry Me. Yeah, I picked this song for a particular reason. I mean, Dolly Parton has an amazing uh, songbook and I could have chosen loads and loads of songs. I, I am a proper Dolly Parton fan. But this uh song uh, means a lot to me because uh we weren't sure if she was going to do the show you know why should we, she you know we were really untested we were a very fledgling little show and we hadn't had you know we had lots of kind of retro stars on mm. that we could go and you know offer them a bag of money and say would you like to appear on television again and on they'd come but you know but Dolly didn't need us. We needed Dolly. And she sent out an amazing signal to lots of other agents and publicists and things, you know, because if Dolly had done the show and had a good time, then it meant something. It meant it was a pretty safe place and you could put your clients on our show. And although it looked dangerous and it looked really crazy and out there, actually, you were pretty safe. So I had to go and meet Dolly before she agreed to do the show. Now, what was that like? Well, you can imagine, absolutely nerve-wracking. Um, and I get there, and I, I knew that uh, 
this was the song she wanted to sing off her album. She, she, I think she'd done The Grass Is Blue, which had kind of revitalized her music career because she'd gone back to bluegrass and everything. And this was uh, another sort of more folksy, traditional album. I can't remember what the album was called. But anyway, this album was, this song is off that album, the second one. Mm-hmm. And I was shown into, I mean, you know, if I say Hotel Suite, it doesn't quite cover what this was. <laughs> I mean, it had stairs in it. Uh, so I I was I was sat in this really kind of overstuffed sofa, the sort of sofa that could eat you. And I'm <laughs> I'm sort of sat there and I'm people are going, Dolly will Miss Parton will be with you shortly, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm left alone in this room. Oh no. And and then in the distance, I just hear this voice going. He's going to marry me. And she came skipping because she's Dolly Parton. How else would she enter a room? She opened these double doors and came skipping into the room, uh, singing this song. And we got on like a house on fire. And uh, I later on got to film in Dollywood with her. We got to hang out there for a few days. And I, yeah, she's, she is the real deal. The, The person you think you know, you do know Brilliant. it is her. Um, and I mean, the fact that she did this, <laughs> he's going to marry me. She kind of wore a kind of leather cowboy outfit to sing it. And it began with her bursting out of a wedding cake. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's peak. It's peak, Dolly Parton. It's peak camp. And uh, it was just a, a joyous, joyous thing. And, of course, you performed with her, didn't you? Is it true that you learned how to sing uh, in order to take part in a rendition of Islands in the Stream? Yes, I had to go to singing lessons for Islands in the Stream. And then I had to record my bit alone. Mm. And then uh, somewhere in America, Dolly did hers. And when we got to uh, Dollywood in America to film this special, Mm. she suggested that we perform Islands in the Stream uh, in these rubber rings in her newly opened Dolly's... No, what is it? Dolly's... I think it's called Dolly's Splash Country. I think that's what it's called. And uh, and it's a a water park which is built next door to Dollywood. Because, you know, she's a businesswoman, so she's thinking, how can I get Dolly Splash Country onto this show? Oh, I know. We'll sit in rubber rings and sing the songs. We bob along one of those kind of water ride things. Lazy river type things. Yeah, one of those. Exactly. Lazy yeah. river thing. And so we get there before Dolly and everyone, it's shut that day So we for our filming. So we got all the local people in to be extras. They're all in the lazy river. And everyone who works at the park is going, so what? Dolly's getting in the water. <laughs> and we were like, yeah. It was her idea. We didn't come up with it. It's her idea. And you could tell they just thought, okay, these people are deluded. If they think Dolly Parton is getting in a lazy river, uh, they are so wrong. Well, the big kind of Winnebago kind of caravan Airstream thing that she was using as a dressing room, Mm. uh, it arrived and the door opened and out she stepped in this... I'm imagining custom-built wetsuit. It certainly (laughs) fitted every curve. Uh, She was wearing that. And she had a special sort of wet-look wig. So it was kind of pre-wet look. This story gets better and better by the second, this, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So, and then we led her down to the water's edge to get in. We're getting into our rubber rings. 
And she was wearing these very kind of high mules, you know, high-heeled kind of slipper things. Right. And when she took them off, though, uh, I noticed that she was still on tippy toes. And I don't know, because I didn't talk to her about this, but I imagine it's because she's been wearing those incredible high heels for so many years that her kind of, her hamstrings have shrunk so much wow. that if she puts her heels down, <laughs> she just, she just falls backwards. I, I don't know. It may not be, I, I don't know. But I, that was certainly the impression I was left with, was that, that that's where she's is with high heel shoes. She kind of needs to wear them. And then we got in the thing, we held hands, and we lip-synced. <laughs> we lip-synced this song to each other. And it's probably on YouTube somewhere uh, if, you, if you want to see it. <laughs> Let's talk about Rise Like a Phoenix. I'm sure you've got so much to say about this. I'm just going to let you talk about why you want this song. Well, look, uh, it's no uh, it's no secret that I adore Eurovision. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and people say, oh, why do you love Eurovision? And it's very hard to explain because it is nonsense and it is just camp silliness and it's this thing we've grown to love over the years. But the night that Conchita won... You know, we all loved this song and we all loved Conchita. I don't think any of us thought she was going to win. All the commentators, you know, because we chat, we're all in these little kind of rabbit hutches way up in the rafters of the the arena. And, you know, you come out and you chat to the other commentators and you, you know, they normally commiserate with us, (laughs) our song. Uh, And I tell them, this is very good. Yours is very good. Uh, But we, everyone was saying, oh, well, our favorite is Conchita. But, you know, clearly she's not going to win because there's a a televote. There's a a televote and the, you know, and whatever about Britain or France or whatever, you felt like there was a whole big block, the Russia's, the Ukraine, all those places, they're not going to go for it. They're mm. not going to vote for the bearded lady singing the the big Shirley Bassey number. Um, they just won't. And the jury votes, I think she did quite well, but didn't do brilliantly. Um, but then the phone vote happened. And actually, it was such a kind of, you know, like I say, it's a silly singing competition. But it was such a lesson that actually people aren't the governments or countries aren't their governments. I guess that's what I'm saying. Countries aren't the governments. Countries are the people who live there. And actually, the people who lived in all these places did respond to Conchita and the emotion of that song and her message and her story. So much was going on in that that performance. It was such a kind of knockout, uh, the way it was staged, the lighting, it's incredibly the, the powerful, way they call the it? shots. It was a single shot for the long, I mean, it's kind of unheard of in Eurovision to hold a shot for as long as they held at the beginning because they they waited till you kind of loved the song and then in they went and you went, oh, the nice lady's got a beard. <laughs> and so they kind of got you in that way. Um, but it it sounds foolish, but so many of us, you know, gnarly old hacks, that night on Eurovision, when we came out of our 
uh, little commentary hutches, we were, you know, we had wet cheeks. We were we were crying because it was so it it felt so emotional and made you love your that <laughs> you love Europe that it had chosen uh, Conchita as the winner and i think it still consistently does that eurovision it confounds you and surprises you um it's uh, i mean even even this year i'm not a, a fan of that that italian song mm. but i love that uh, this sort of metal big trash metal song uh was a runaway hit at eurovision you know you just never know but for me so far in my eurovision career uh conchita versed with rise like a phoenix was my absolute favorite 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 moment now before we get on to your last pick graham uh just want to ask you graham norton what does pride mean to you i mean i think Pride is one of those things where just when you think we're done with it, we realize we still need it. <laughs> um, RuPaul, uh, who I work with on Drag Race, she, he says a thing where, you know, we talk about the news and we're talking about, you know, some threat to somebody's rights or mm. some legislation that's been brought in in some state. And Ru just goes, didn't we do this already? And there is that sense of, didn't we do this already? You know, do we really need pride still? And the truth is, we do, because you need you need to keep the pressure up. Even though you know we're very very lucky in in Britain, we have so many rights. Um, but it's not there's not full equality. You know there's still queer bashing goes on. There's still hate crime, and all of that means that pride is necessary. Um, and pride doesn't need to be political with a capital P. I always go, you know, on a political agenda, Is if there's any other business, then that's what pride is. Pride is any other business because it's about visibility and it's about seeing other people. It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast uh, recently and it was about uh, – it was actually about the <laughs> – how gay is this? It's a podcast about the theft of the ruby slippers from the <laughs> Judy Garland Museum in Kansas. Um, but they talk about um, the very beginnings and, you know, the Stonewall riots yeah. and how they were the night of Judy Garland's funeral. Right. And and something that hadn't struck me about this, and someone was articulating this on the, on the podcast, was that because she had so many gay fans, that actually the crowds that lined the streets for her funeral, the crowds that all went to the funeral home and all of that, it was a very gay crowd. And although they weren't out, out, they recognized each other. So there was a kind of a, it was a weird moment back then that in the daylight, in the, in, you know, the glare of the sun, these people were out on the streets and sort of being openly gay, certainly recognizing the gayness in each other. And and they were extrapolating from that, that actually that powered the riot later that night, that actually people were, people felt empowered already by the fact of that big gathering in the street um, for for Judy's funeral, and I wonder if there's something in that. I'd it never struck me before, but I think maybe there was something in that because you know gay people hadn't done that before, and 
I think still, you know, I think in London it's very easy to be cynical about pride and kind of think, oh, you don't need it. And it's da, 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 da. But how amazing for the kid that I was getting off that bus in San Francisco. There are those kids, there are loads of people of all ages who will come to London and they will have never experienced anything like that before or go to their own town, go to their local town and experience a pride. They won't have seen it. They won't have been in a group like that where they have this shared identity. And you can't kind of overstate the importance of that of visibility, of seeing yourself, of recognizing yourself and knowing that you aren't alone and you're not in it alone. And there's lots of people and they're all different shapes and sizes and ages and races. And that I just I think that will never stop being important for queer people. Do you still get to go to these events? Would you go to, say, a, you know, the next Pride when we're out of the pandemic and what what have you? Is that something that you you can you do that, or I can. do you get mobbed, or how how does that work out? You know, do you still go on the gay scene? I mean, it, it's so weird. You you ask me that question, I'm thinking, did I? <laughs> I mean, I would still go to gay bars and I certainly don't get mobbed. I mean, gay people are far too cool to be impressed by <laughs> some some old bloke off the telly. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I definitely um, still go to gay bars. And if I'm in, I'm, often I'm away for Pride, so I don't go. But funny enough, the, the last song is the last Pride I went to. Oh, okay. I, they had World Pride in uh, New York in 2019. Mm. And I was going to be there for it. So I was really excited. I was going to go out. And it was. And again, you know, you think, will New, will New York still be excited by Pride? In 2019, does Pride mean anything to people living in this huge metropolitan city where you would feel like, you know, gayness is n not an issue at all? And wow, do they. I mean, they embrace it completely and I think they were really proud that it was world pride and so it's world pride it's in New York City I'm there and the closing act for the weekend yeah is step forward Madonna <laughs> she is. Uh, and because I'd been I'd been doing some stuff with her for Madame X she'd been on my show and then I hosted a thing for her in Crystal Palace was it Crystal Palace? Alexander Palace? Oh, some palace. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> this I'd was the questions and answers thing you did, wasn't it? The, it yeah. yeah, exactly. Wherever that was. Yeah. Anyway, that. I did that somewhere. And there were fans there and Madonna. And because of that, they, uh, in, they invited me to see Madonna. And she was on a pier. She was going to be at the end of a pier um, on the Hudson in New York. Mm. So I get there. And they kind of, you know, everyone's there already. It's hours before she's going to appear, but, you know, no one's going to miss this. And we get shown through the crowd, shown through the crowd, shown through the crowd. And then in through this kind of side bit, I kind of, oh, this seems a bit rubbish. We're kind of tucked away here, you know, at the side like this. Mm. I, you know, I, I thought we might get a better view than this. And then it was like we turned a corner and boom, there was the stage. I mean, we were sort of 20 feet from the stage uh, in this little kind of booth with other people. 
and and as you know the evening went on more and more people arrived you know um Lourdes was there and uh, Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper and there was a bunch of famous people there mm. um and and then like that the sun setting there was fireworks the the one of the fire boats came up and did that funny girl thing or whatever it is when they, you know they shoot the water out of the the boats on right. the on the Hudson I don't know what it's called the water cannon I don't know that yeah. makes it sound like a, they're ending a riot but it seemed <laughs> celebratory at the time it, it didn't seem it's a beautiful it didn't seem frightening water display or isn't it and then. Uh, and Madonna came out. Well, actually, before Madonna came out, uh, they rolled out steps. And you think, oh, Madonna, ple- enough with the steps now. <laughs> why Why do you insist on going up and down steps on stage? Stop it. Because uh, I that was I was at the... Were you at the Brits that night? No, I wasn't. Uh, oh. I was on holiday, and I woke up to text saying, oh, Steve, oh, no. You know, it was just heartbreaking <laughs> to see it, wasn't it? And the th- I, I, you can hear it just on television, the thud at the arena. Oh. When you, I mean, what was that like, just the, the, that, that Brit Awards performance? So the, there was the thud. There was the thud. Where, because it, what was weird was uh, I knew one of the floor managers and he was saying, oh, God, you know, um, Madonna's been driving us crazy. She's been doing all these extra rehearsals. She's in here when there's, you know, the, it's just working lights. You know, she's... Rehearse, 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 rehearse. And I've heard this from other people. I remember when Nicki Minaj did her halftime show at the Super Bowl, she went, I don't rehearse this much from my own shows. <laughs> <laughs> but so Madonna done all the rehearsal and she, she she went to take the cloak off. And I remember thinking at the time, isn't it amazing? Nothing ever goes wrong. That's literally, that's what I thought as she was pulling at the thread of the, the cloak. I was thinking, oh, it's weird. Nothing ever goes wrong. And then they pulled her and you got to well, is that on purpose and then the fall and you thought oh no that was not mm. on purpose and the sound of 13,000 people inhaling gasping at the same time is something I won't forget in a hurry it was so and then and you know horrible for her and apparently she was very very upset afterwards and it was mm. terrible but nothing else mattered nobody knows anything else that happened that night that was the one thing <laughs> that occurred. She owned it, didn't she? All the publicity the following day was, yeah. was her. It was all her. Uh, but I, I genuinely don't think she did it on purpose. But So anyway, she's had that bad experience. We're then sitting in New York waiting to see her not do, basically, I think one of her first performances since then. And they wheel out steps. You think, oh, Madge, come on. <laughs> just, just get over know. them. <laughs> Yeah, come on, don't don't push it. But uh, and she did she did a couple of classics, uh, one of which was Vogue, which we played her earlier. But she ended with this song, and it's off Madame X. And actually, I think a lot of people didn't give that album as much time as it deserved. I think it's a really interesting album, and I think there's some great tracks on it. And this track isn't one of my favorite tracks on it, actually, but. I guess I liked it as a Pride playlist song because in all the the party of World Pride New York fireworks, you know, people all over the world, people, you know, dancing with their shirts off, she sort of brought it back to politics. She didn't end on with holiday. She brought it back to this. And it felt powerful and it felt sincere and genuine. And, and I think... It reminded everyone there of the importance of pride and how, 
you know, it still matters to people and it still has a role to play in our community's ongoing journey. Well, it's, it's been an amazing journey and, and you, I, I just hope that you realise how much you mean to so many people over the years. Like I say, so many people have credited you as, you know, as, as big kind of influence, as big parts of their life, you know, growing up, trying to figure out who they are. You've been like a, I suppose, like a, a beam of positivity over these years and over the decades. And it's at all, sometimes I feel guilty because I'm not overtly political. I don't, you know, I, I think part of that is working for the BBC now where I feel like I can't raise my head above the parapet. I feel like, uh, you know, and I understand it because of the way the BBC is funded. It is difficult for me, I think, to take a political stance. And sometimes I feel guilty about that. But then I kind of think, oh, well, I did another thing. Uh, I did something that, that wasn't about politics, but it was about visibility. And sometimes I do, you know, I get people coming up and, and thanking me because I started a conversation in their house mm. and it, I started a safe conversation because it wasn't a news item about something. It was the whole family watching this silly show and laughing and then somebody being able to say something about their own sexuality in in what felt like a kind of a safe space. So if if I did help in any way, that's great. You know, it wasn't what the show was about. It wasn't what it was for. But if it did help a couple of people along the way, then that's a, a lovely, a lovely kind of bonus. It's a it's a cherry on a very, very nice cake. 